time for Swordplay. Alex, the Pope declared earlier this week that owning nuclear weapons is immoral. What? I thought it was okay as long as it included both parents and their children. I think you're thinking of a nuclear family unit. So a family business can't sell weapons now? What's going on? Never mind. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. (laughs) I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Habakkuk chapter 3. That's right. We're finishing up the book of Habakkuk. So go back and read the book of Habakkuk one more time. If you've been keeping up with us, then this will just be a continuation of things we've already said in the first two podcasts, archived and ready for your convenience at your uh, fingertips in your podcast app or the website. So let's just jump right into chapter three, Nick. Yep, we have, verse, verse yeah. two here. Uh, Habakkuk says, uh, Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you, your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. So Alex, talk for a minute about what what will be made known in the midst of years. Yeah, so if we're looking at the Masoretic text, which is you know your typical English translation, Yahweh's work likely is referring to the years of slavery ahead of them. Make it known in the midst of the years. Remember wrath uh, or mercy in the midst of your wrath. Uh, so they have years of slavery ahead of them. And so I think the work there might be the work of God to restore them as a nation, to not leave them scattered and exiled forever. But when you look at the Septuagint, you have a completely different verse, actually. (laughs) It says, in the midst of two living beings, you will be made known. When the years approach, you will be recognized. When the time is present, you will be manifested. That's quite a bit different. So the Septuagint variance here is interesting. The two living beings likely referencing the uh, Keruvim that were represented on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant they are the beings that form God's throne or his uh, His chariot, or they're uh, beings that protect the throne. They protect sacred space, throne guardians. What does that all mean, though? Uh, to me, it sounds like from the Septuagint that Habakkuk envisions a personal visit from Yahweh coming sometime in the future, and it will be a visit for their salvation. And I think this is likely a messianic reference as well about um, it will be made in the midst of the years. Uh, as it approaches, you'll be seen. It will be made known. I think there's some messianic flavors there. What do you think, Nick? Um, so you you point forward to eschatological stuff. I'm going to probably stick with more of a historical approach as we go through Chapter 3. Um, and... Uh, one one writer I read was saying that Habakkuk is essentially praying for history to repeat itself. And so the NIV talks about these are all inspiring deeds, deeds that inspire on. Um, instead of fear, it has awe in the NIV. And, and that that's what Habakkuk wants God to do. He wants God to renew in his day the awe-inspiring deeds that he has done previously. And specifically, as the text I think will bear this out and show, Habakkuk is calling for God to intervene yet again in Israel's history. Habakkuk wants the day of trouble to come upon the invading forces, and specifically that's going to be, uh, for me, my read, Babylon. And uh, that's the nation that invaded uh, Judah, and that's who Habakkuk wants to go down. And God says it will, but you're going to have to wait. And so, um, I think that that's that's uh, uh, what I see here in verse two. Yeah, and I think that'll be a continuing uh, uh, theme for you and I through the rest of this chapter. Is you'll see most of these verses as Babylon coming upon Jerusalem and wiping them out, and uh, I'll see this as a remembrance of the Exodus and their rescue from Egypt and Habakkuk's hope for another Exodus event to happen for his people sometime in the future. Is that correct? 
are two different views there. No, I, I would just expand that not only Babylon coming and invading Judah, but also Babylon's going down eventually too. But oh, okay, uh, yeah. so a both and yep. kind of deal. But your view of Babylon going down is like the historical view, right? Right. Where they'll be eventually absorbed uh, by Medo Persia. And my view is that Babylon's going down in the cosmic realm. You mentioned eschatological perspective. Yeah, in the time in which the powers of darkness behind Babylon will be judged and God will launch his new humanity, his new exodus. So uh, by eschatological, I'm, I'm pointing towards Christ, not necessarily the, the end end when Christ returns. So we'll keep making that distinction, seeing how that perspective plays out verse by verse. Now, Nick, uh, verses 3 through 5, mm-hmm. we have sort of a grouping of ideas here. Um, God co- God comes from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. It talks about his radiance, his splendor. Um, Nick, do you think verses 3 through 5 refer to an historical event? Perhaps. Um so one of the things that that I'll be doing is working through much of the prophecy in Habakkuk 3 through the interpretive framework of Deuteronomy 32 and 33 because there's just so much there, the the linguistic touch points are so prevalent that it's um hard for me to ignore that absolutely and so um here this is very similar. The, the Holy One from Mount Paran, very similar to Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2. Um, it shares some, but not all, of the same elements, especially that bit about Mount Paran, which is one of the mountains typically associated with the giving of the law, in addition to Seir and Sinai. Uh, the pestilence and plague, that could be an allusion to the Exodus or the ten plagues in Egypt that preceded the Exodus. And so I think one is intended to recall when God showed up and when he judged Egypt. Um, and that that back then is instructive for what's going to happen uh, for the people of Judah as God comes and does his strange work of invading his people with an invading nation, but also in issuing judgment to the nation that does that. Um, on the other hand, another way of looking at this would be that, again, Deuteronomy 32-33 as kind of the interpretive framework, here they are on the verge of going in to take the promised land. And something that Moses sang was that pestilence and plague would overtake a faithless Israel, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 24. And so it could be that Habakkuk is recalling that pronouncement that God in our day, is doing exactly what he promised. He is arising and coming in judgment on his people, uh, just like he promised. He's being faithful to the covenant. So um, that's uh, my take on it. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, um, Deuteronomy 32 and 33 definitely have connections to Habakkuk 3. And so that passage, those those chapters are going to lend themselves both to your uh, historical fulfillment perspective and to my more uh, cosmic eschatological fulfillment perspective. And I'll show you how. So I, I would vote yes, there is an historical event in mind uh, for verses 3 through 5. And we'll ask that question again as we go to verses uh, 6 and following. But I, I believe that historical event in mind is the Exodus. Now, verse 3 mentions Timon and Mount Paran. Timon was sometimes used in reference to the territory of the Edomites, but in general, the word Timon was another way of just saying the south. And so Paran was generally considered west of Eden. And nobody really knows where Mount Paran actually is located. And so this area is south and southwest of where Canaan is, where the promised land is. And that's the area where Yahweh is going to be manifested. He's going to make himself known. Uh, If you're reading Exodus, Mount Sinai is the name of the mountain where they'll get the law. If you're reading Deuteronomy, it's referred to as Mount Seir. And if uh, 
you see Deuteronomy 33, and then later in Habakkuk, and uh, I think that's it, you'll see that same mountain called Mount Paran. I think these are all the same mountain, perhaps different sides of the same mountain, but the same place nonetheless. Um, now, the most interesting part is indeed the parallel you noted in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, uh, making Sinai, say, ear parallel to Timon. Uh, both including Mount Paran. But in academic literature, these sites are referenced in what's called the Yahweh from the South tradition. And again, that refers to some sort of presence or knowledge of Yahweh already in this region before the Exodus. And if you think about Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who was Jethro? What was his job? He was a priest in the land of Midian. Well, who is he a priest to? Just like, it's likely he, he was a priest who in some shape or form knew of or served Yahweh and you see him even join the Israelites for a little while after their exodus the important part to remember in all of this is that Yahweh rose up made himself known from this area saving the Israelites out of Egypt and going before them and conquering the promised land and so those two events exodus and conquest those will be reenacted by Yahweh in some way in order to restore God's people and kingdom. I think that's what Habakkuk is looking forward to, why he's writing what he's writing in this, uh, in this poem, in this song that we call chapter 3. Uh, another connection we see in verse 4, it says, Rays were flashing from his hand. And that's an obvious reference, I think, to lightning, because the hiding of his power would be the thunderclouds. You think a thunderstorm rolls in with these big thunderclouds, and inside the thunderclouds are the flashing rays of lightning. And again, that is an exact parallel to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. Now, the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 doesn't say flashes of lightning at his right hand. It says with angels at his right hand. And that's interesting. So the image of um, uh, Yahweh being painted here is him coming, riding on his throne chariot, coming in the storm clouds with all of his angelic entourage around him, who themselves are flexing their power, which looks like lightning bolts flashing back and forth. And that's a similar description of the throne chariot scene in Ezekiel as well. Another connection, verse 5 says, Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. And just like I talked about last week, within the Hebrew here, there are actual names of well-known deities from the ancient Near East. Here we have two famous Canaanite deities, Dever, which is translated as pestilence here, and Reshef, which is translated as plague here. These are both deities associated with the underworld. They're called Chthonic deities. That's what that means, gods of the dead, underworld. And Yahweh has them taking his marching orders. <laughs> and that, that's amazing. So both deities, they are also mentioned, both Dever and Reshef, in Psalm 78, verses 48 through 50. Again, a, a psalm about the Exodus. And that's the psalm that talks about Yahweh bringing all these plagues against Egypt. And how did he do that? Through a band of destroying angels. That's what it says. But Reshef in that passage gets translated in Psalm 78 as bolts of lightning, which is strange. There's no reason to translate it that way. Dever gets translated as plague, which again is a little inconsistent. It's obvious that these are actual beings that the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 78 verse 48 because it calls them a band of destroying angels. So the actual plagues against Egypt during the Exodus are pictured as being the powers of these destroying, avenging angels who come obeying Yahweh in the midst of his angelic entourage as he comes to judge and trample the nations. That's a lot there. I tried to compact it down as, <laughs> as much as I could, but there was just too much there to talk about. So any thoughts, Nick? <laughs> um. Uh, only that the only thought that came to my mind was the prevalence of that um, throne chariot imagery, um, and you mentioned Ezekiel, um, God that's uh, mounting the his his uh, chariots, the war wagon. Yeah. Um, that's all over the Old Testament when he when he gets up in the clouds, and it's not puffy white fun clouds; it's dark, rain laden, ominous clouds, and not only thick with rain but also with lightning stuff so yeah that's a that's a very common picture for right. describing the coming of Yahweh yep that's how he shows up in the exodus well nick uh we have a little notation in our bible uh right verse 3 verse 9 and verse 13 it says selah mm -hmm. what does that mean yeah so a uh, couple things here one is um 
Uh, we we skipped verse one, but I think it's because I kind of anticipated we get to verse three here. There is this is a song that that Habakkuk is praying. Um, it's set to music as we see in verse nineteen, and uh, so it, it's according to Shagayanoth. I don't know. You're the Hebrew expert between the two of us. <laughs> I probably butchered that, but. Um, What's interesting about that term is it's a transliteration from the Hebrew, and nobody really knows what it means. It's just yeah. uh, a musical notation, and and that's kind of what Salah is like. Salah is um, a musical notation as well. The way that I describe it, you, you see it all over the Psalms. You go and read the Psalms, it's all over the place. I describe it as the pause button of ancient Near Eastern hymns. Um, in Psalms, is the pause button in Psalms. You're supposed to just hit the pause button, stop, and think. And just kind of, I don't have my beard anymore right now, but you, you're supposed to stroke the beard and go, hmm, right? <laughs> and just reflect on what you just read or sang. That's what Salah is. And so, just walk through this verse 3. Um, pause and reflect, because here comes God. Here comes Yahweh. Um Typically, it would be a good thing for his people. Now, however, it's going to be disaster um, for Judah and ultimately disaster for Babylon. God is going to make war on his people, but then he'll be the avenging divine warrior uh, at some point in the future. Uh, verse 9, you hit the pause button and reflect on the majestic holiness of God's power as the divine warrior. He's got his bows and his horses and arrows and all this stuff, right? So he's the divine warrior and just supposed to go, hmm, wow. And then verse 13, right before the death blow comes, you're supposed to pause and marvel at the utter ruin of those who oppose God. And and that is fear-inducing and awe-inspiring, and God is just when he does that. Um, so that's that's Salah. That's what what you're supposed to do with with that musical notation. Just kind of sit there and go, "Whoa, wow, oh, ah!" Right? It's you're supposed to reflect and marvel at um, at what you just read or sang. Does that make sense? You know, Nick, I think that's a little unfair your perspective there because uh, you know there's some people like me who can't grow a beard. So what am I supposed to what am I supposed Whoops. to do? Uh, my bad. Uh, curse my testosterone (laughs) (laughs) so i yeah i would agree good good coverage on the word salah um i would only divert on one point i think we already talked about this though i just i think israel uh, and the hope of israel's future exodus is being pointed at in these passages and so this judgment where god comes as a divine warrior is against the powers of darkness not against israel because that's sort of past news now that's we dealt with that in chapter one and chapter 2 we dealt with the judgment of Babylon and now we have the divine warrior Yahweh and we'll see that uh, Habakkuk is still going to have to wait though for Jerusalem's destruction it hasn't happened yet we see that in, in verse 16 um, verses 6 through 7 though we have another little section that sort of looks like it goes together and the question again is Nick do you, do you think verses 6 and 7 refer to an historical event again uh, perhaps um so at Mount Sinai, the whole mountain shook. This is Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20. The whole mountain shook. And it was such an impressive sight that all the people shrank away. And they told Moses, you go talk to him. We're not. We can't talk to him. We'll die. And so all this here in verse 6 about the shaking, shook the nations, um, eternal mountains scattered, sunk low, and all that could be alluding to that. On the other hand, I talked about the linguistic connections uh, between Habakkuk 3 and Deuteronomy 32-33. They're they're intriguing and they're very strong. Uh, Measured the earth there in verse 6 here in Habakkuk 3. That corresponds to Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. Eternal mountains and everlasting hills here in verse 6. Uh, that may correspond to the ancient mountains and the everlasting hills of Joseph's portion in Deuteronomy 33, verse 15. In which case, again, God is shaking the very inheritance he gave Joseph, and it's uh, prophetically intended to figure uh, what's going to happen for Judah here. 
The portion he gave will crumble and collapse, is what the NIV says there for scattered and sank low. Um, let me just say, we saw this last week when Habakkuk quoted from Isaiah. Habakkuk read and knew his Bible. All right. We too should all be reading our Bibles. I can't emphasize that enough. Get in your Bible, read your Bible, uh, do it on a consistent basis. And you want to know one of the best ways of being able to interpret, especially prophetic literature like this, is to be familiar with the rest of the Bible, because chances are imagery like this has shown up elsewhere. And so, man, just read your Bible. I want to encourage all of our listeners to do that. Get a good Bible reading plan, a good Bible reading program, and just stick with it. Another tip there, in addition to reading your Bible, is to... Uh, read it like you would a book. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you, you wouldn't have to say that, but it's true. You know, you sit down, you read Lord of the Rings, and you can talk about the themes and the symbolism and the connections and the direction and the meta narrative of the story. And then we sit down and we read the Bible and we pretend like none of that's there, <laughs> like that somehow undermines its reality. It's just like no, no, it doesn't undermine its reality. It's it enhances the amazing. Um, the amazing way in which it was was written and told, most of it in story form. So, uh, read it like you're reading a book. Um, I would vote to this question. You know, if it's six and seven, is this an historical event? I would vote yes again. I think it's a continuation of the historical event being recalled from verse uh, three onward, and I think it's still talking about the Exodus. Uh, we see here that Yahweh startles the nations. Well, when did he startle the nations? Or even more vivid, the Septuagint says the nations melted. I believe that that was during the Exodus. Recall Rahab's words even 40 years later, right? The book of Joshua, she tells the spies, terror of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Why? Wow, good connection. Because she tells them what she had heard about the Red Sea, about Egypt, about even recently with the Amorites beyond the Jordan, the giant kings Og uh, uh, and Sihon. She's heard, they've heard, they've all heard, and they are trembling in fear because of Yahweh. And Rahab says, I want to switch teams. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be on your team. So there is um, some parallelism, I think, going on in this section, these two verses, six and seven. Uh, The earth is shaken and the mountains are broken in pieces. That's the Septuagint version. Uh, both the nations are melted, but also the eternal hills are melted. That's, again, the Septuagint. It's likely that the nations are being described as mountains and hills, and I think that would include uh, also the heavenly powers behind those nations. If Habakkuk 3 really is tracking on Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 33, which I think it is, you think it is, then it's easy to see the connection between the nations being judged and also the heavenly powers of those nations being judged. You mentioned uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Well, 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy 32 says, Remember when God divided mankind according to the number of the sons of God. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls reading. That's the ESV reading, which incorporates the Dead Sea Scrolls. Or if you want the Septuagint reading, it says, According to the number of the angels of God. Now, that's you know Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 8. So when... Yahweh showed up to rescue Israel from Egypt. He judged their gods, which are the the sons of God, or these fallen angels. And the gods of the other nations, uh, they shook with fear as they watched what happened to the gods of Egypt. And that led to, as we see in Habakkuk 3, uh, 7, that led to the tents and tent curtains of Cush, which is probably Ethiopia, and the tents and tent curtains of Midian, trembling. That's what it says in verse 7. By tents and curtains, that's, I think that's alluding to the idea of land division of territories, and thus also their territorial rulers. You know, tents mark off space as belonging to someone. The curtain divides that space. Again, the important thing to remember here is that, from my perspective, Habakkuk is saying that one day in the future, there will be another exodus and another reordering of all the territory of the earth. The kingdom of God will come. And when Jesus shows up, he says, it's at hand. (laughs) And then when he uh, has his victory at the cross, he says, now make disciples of all nations. 
And that is our conquest narrative. And that's where we're at right now in the meta narrative as the church. We're in conquest of all the world, of all the territories, to take it back, to create one world temple for Yahweh. So, Nick, any thoughts on that? I know that we're having two different, you know, viewpoints here, but uh, any any no good up? connections. All yeah. Right. Well, why don't you talk to us about verses eight through ten for a minute? Because uh, the question is, does verses eight through ten refer to an historical event? <laughs> um. At least three options present themselves here. Uh, one, uh, this could be uh, the language of verses 8 through 10, could be uh, pointing to the creation of the world. And there are some linguistic clues here that could point to that. But uh, for me, uh, the problem with that is in connection to the wrath and the anger, God creating in wrath and anger just, uh, eh, not going to. Not a, not a real strong self sure, for me. Sure. Uh, two is the Exodus, and uh, you've been talking about this, making connection throughout um, our discussion. God, his wrathful judgment of Egypt in turning the Nile to blood, Exodus 7, verses 20 to 21. He caused the Red Sea to part in Exodus 14, 15, and following. Those could be in view. Um, the warfare imagery here, where you've got bows and horses and chariots. That also lends weight to this view. Uh, God, the divine warrior, rising up to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. Right. A third option could be the crossing of the Jordan into the Promised Land. Some actually incorporate this into option two. I'm going to just make it its own third option here. So God's wrath is kind of anticipatory of... Uh, what would come in the conquest of the land, Joshua 3, verses 14 through 17. Right, right. And so they cross the, the Jordan River on dry land there. Um, again, the linguistic ties to Deuteronomy 32, very striking here. You have mention of uh, calling for many arrows in the middle of verse 9 there. Uh, that could correspond to God's arrows drunk with blood in Deuteronomy 32:42. Back in, Deuter- uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, it was God avenging the blood of his children. He was bringing his vengeance on his adversaries. Now, the target of his warfare are his people in the first place when he judges them through Babylon. But then that's followed up by judgment upon Babylon itself. And so uh, that it's a different thing, but it, again, it echoes. And I think that's Habakkuk's intention here. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, your second option there about the Exodus being the historical event in mind, I'm going to continue mm-hmm. on that uh, rant <laughs> that I've been on. <laughs> so, so I'll say, yeah, it's an historical event. It's the Exodus. And even um, your other options about some creation motifs going on, but also the divine warrior motif going on. Um, there's a little bit of all of that going on. So uh, I'll see if I can touch on that for a minute. So uh, this reenactment or remembering of the Exodus, I think that will continue through verse 15 because it doesn't seem to be a clear break in thought until verse 16. So verse 13, we get a strong indication that this is the case, the, the Exodus event, because it says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And so first, this speaks of a past tense event. You went. So it already happened. Second, God's action here is for his people's salvation. And so I think that's likely referring to the pinnacle salvation event in the Old Testament, which was unrivaled in history until the cross of Christ. And so, of course, that's the Exodus. It's understandable that one would also see creation language, though, in this passage, since the Exodus was another type of creation event. But it's not referring to Genesis 1 completely because you mentioned, uh, you know, creating in wrath. That doesn't fit, right? So uh, we'll see in a moment, though, that this talk about water has undertones, has echoes of creation language in it, which makes sense because Israel was God's new creation. Overall, as you mentioned earlier, this section, uh, verses 8 through 15, is the description of Yahweh as the divine warrior God, mounting up on the chariots of the clouds, heading out to battle. And we see a rhetorical question in verse 8. It says, were you angry at the rivers, 
I think the answer is no. He was angry at the nations. That's verse 12. So he came out to trample the nations. And I believe this would include both the Exodus event, also uh, you mentioned the conquest. I think it would include that, the conquest of Canaan, the driving out of those nations, also the earlier conquest of the Transjordan, the driving out of those nations. Another rhetorical question, it says in verse 8, was your wrath against the sea? And again, no, but here is where you start to get creation motifs, these echoes. Because the word sea in Hebrew is yam. And yam was a well-known Canaanite deity. He's the god of the sea. In Canaanite mythology, the Canaanite storm god Baal fights and defeats Yom and then uses Yom's body to create the heavens and the earth. This is paralleled to the Babylonian uh, version where I think it's called the Enuma Elish, where Marduk, the most high god in the Babylonian pantheon, he's another storm god, he defeats the primordial chaos water monster called Tiamat. Now, Tiamat in Hebrew is the word Tehom, which gets translated here in Habakkuk 3.10 as the deep. But it can also be seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says darkness was over the surface of the deep, or Tehom. So what do we make out of all this? There's a lot of pieces going on here, a lot of plates spinning at once. Well, the biblical creation story and references to it later, the echoes of it, they have no battle really taking place between Yahweh and Yom, or between Yahweh and Tiamat, or Tehom. Yahweh shows up, and they simply obey. Yeah, there's no fight necessary. <laughs> he just speaks, and they do what he says. In fact, that's probably the point in this passage. Verse 5, Dever and Resheph, they obey. Uh, verses 8 through 10, Yom and Tiamat, they surrender. In verse 10, it says that uh, Tahom lifts up its hands. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. <laughs> hmm. Put your arrows down. I give up. Mm-hmm. Sun and moon, which are more deities, uh, they stand still. So the only uh, one who Yahweh cuts down in this passage, in fact, it says he slices him from thigh to neck. <laughs> Yikes. Is the house of the evil one in verse 13. And we'll talk about who that was in a minute. But he does that in order to save his people. In this passage, it's just filled with cosmic battle language. It says, you pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. Well, that's probably referring to the defeat of Egypt and their soldiers rushing to their death in the parted waters of the Red Sea. Uh, or it could be de- referring to the <clears throat> also to the Red Sea being sliced in half. You know, um, The thing to remember, though, is that another cosmic battle will take place to rescue God's people and his anointed. And just like in the Exodus where the Egyptians effectively sunk themselves, so too the powers of darkness will sink themselves by crucifying Jesus. The very event, that crucifixion, is the very event that will disarm them. We get that from Colossians 2, 14-15 and 1 Corinthians 2, 8. Now in Habakkuk uh, 3.15, we see Yahweh trampling on the sea, that's Yom, with his horses, And here we need to make mention that the sea was typical language for chaos. It denoted territory where Yahweh did not rule or had not tamed and brought it to order. Egypt was a cosmic sea of chaos. And Yahweh showed up with his avenging angels, that's his horses, think the horsemen of Revelation. And he stomped out the chaos to create his new people, Israel. And this will happen again. In fact, it did happen again with Jesus And the new creation is the Christian. Uh, But first, Jesus had to walk on the water, right? He had to tell the storm waves to shut up. (laughs) There was no battle. He just said shut up, and it it did. (laughs) So lots and lots of layers there going on that I wanted to bring out and touch on. I know it's another long rant of mine, but I just thought that was very, very interesting. Any thoughts from you, Nick? I'll deep dive into the deep there. That's right, (laughs) into the abyss. (laughs) So, Nick, um, back to verse 13, I mentioned this head of the house of the wicked. Who is that, do you think, the head of the house of the wicked that Yahweh slices from thigh to neck? Yeah, the NIV says uh, leader of the land of wickedness. Um, and I, th- that perhaps brings into focus a bit what uh, who is in view here. Uh, my read is the Babylonian king. We've talked a lot about uh, the echoes to the exodus in this chapter. Well... Pharaoh, he had been the 
head of the house of the wicked back during the Exodus, um, the object of God's wrath. Here it points to the king, the leader of Babylon, who would be laid bare. The NIV says he would be stripped uh, from uh, thigh to neck, right? Uh, that is, he'd be defeated. And historically, I think we can point to uh, Belshazzar, who was stripped of his power in a night. We can read about that in Daniel chapter 5. And, and one more thing here, uh, note the language. Um, you, verse 12, you marched, you threshed, and that's the idea of like an ox crushing the chaff. Uh, you crushed, you trampled um, in verses 13 and 15. God is not here tippy-tippy-toeing through the tulips, as it were. <laughs> God is bowling a china shop in this thing and get out of the way or you're going to get crushed. And in fact, the sinful and the wicked, they don't get out of the way. And he just, uh, well, if they're in the way, he will roll right over them as we teach the kids to sing, right? Crushing the grapes so, of wrath, uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> um so, uh, just, I mean, again, all this divine warrior uh, language, this, uh, this theme running through here. Uh, what about you, Alex? Who's the head of the house of the wicked? Man, I think there's multiple answers going on here, and that's probably intentional. You know, first, in the remembrance of the Exodus, it's probably Pharaoh in mind. Uh, in Habakkuk's day, though, it's the same behind the scene. You know, powers of darkness is probably referring to the ruler of Babylon. And in the cosmic realm of Jesus' day, um, it's going to be it's going to be Satan, and I think that's really the the cosmic view here is that we have powers of darkness at play, and and eventually you're going to have this picture develop where it seems like Satan has consolidated the powers of darkness under his rule He's, in the same way that he has consolidated the nations, and he offers it to Jesus, saying, "Worship me, bow down to me, and I'll give you all of these nations," and. Uh, that would have been a real temptation if Satan had an actual real offer to give on, on the table. So I, I think it's multiple, multiple answers, and that's intentional in order to reflect on the past, Habakkuk's present, and his future hope. Um, now, let's see. What else do we have here, though? we got a few more verses left in chapter 3. We do. Verse 16, Habakkuk says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. My English Standard reading there. Um, so, Alex, does does Habakkuk have to actually wait in Jerusalem for destruction? Well, I won't say he has to. I suppose he could. Uh, maybe he could volunteer to to go into captivity, uh, be a a fellow slave with uh, the other Israelites who aren't slaughtered. I'm going to go with uh, no. He doesn't have to, and that might not be what he's actually saying. You know, he'll likely obey the command to run away in uh, chapter 2, verse 2. But even from a distance, right, let's say he gets out of town before destruction happens. He'll still have to watch, he'll still have to wait, and he'll still have to hear of the unfolding terror that will befall Jerusalem. But maybe he'll stay till the last second and uh, keep giving warning as long as he has breath to, to warn, to be that watchman that he was out there watching and waiting on the tower at the beginning of chapter 2. No matter where he goes, though, whether he stays in Jerusalem or goes somewhere else to, you know, while the, to ride out the storm, he'll still be swept up into Babylon's nets because Babylon came and they, they conquered that whole region. They consolidated all the nations under their empire. And so either way, um, he, he knows that bad times are ahead. And so he has to remember now before the storm gets here that there's still going to be a silver lining. There's still going to be a, a hope for a future uh, restoration. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, I, I concur. Probably not in Jerusalem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, he'll probably get out of there. But, you know, um, he will wait. Um, let's see. Show of hands. Raise your hand if you like waiting. I'm looking. I'm, no, no one? Yeah, no one. That's right. <laughs> no one likes to wait. Um, we, especially 21st century American uh, folks, we we like our microwaves. We like um, uh, our high speed internet, right? We want stuff immediately, and yet here's Habakkuk, and that is exactly what Habakkuk and the people will have to do. They have to wait quietly 
or patiently, uh, with heart pounding, lips quavering, legs like cooked spaghetti. They got to wait. And my middle reading of Habakkuk puts the doomsday clock some 80 to 100 years before God actually comes. The day of trouble is visited upon people who invade us. So uh, waiting. Yeah, that's the hardest part in that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think Habakkuk um, really will see this unfold in his own day with my uh, late dating, right? So if he's writing the early 600s destruction comes in 586 he's he's gonna see it he's gonna be alive when it happens um let's go to verse 17 and it talks about uh fig trees and vines and olives and fields and all this stuff alex all this agricultural terminology what does the agricultural descriptions refer to yeah, so you mentioned fig trees in this verse, fruit of the vine, grapes, you know, olives, fields, flocks, cattle, um, all things uh, for um, a sacrifice as well, by the way. Just mm. as we saw in the book of Joel, uh, Yahweh was pretty keen on describing Israel as his garden and the people as his flock. So I don't think it's just talking about literal agricultural but that garden of Yahweh is about to fall and be turned into a chaotic wasteland once more, just like it was uh, in the first fall of creation in Genesis. And that's a sad picture. Uh, you know, Jesus, when he shows up in the first century, he takes that same picture and he uses it to forewarn Jerusalem that Jerusalem will be destroyed again in the New Testament times. He says, I think it's Mark 11, he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. He he curses a fig tree that way as he enters into Jerusalem right before his uh, crucifixion events unfold. And that's when the the fig tree had no fruit on it, you know, which was normal because it wasn't fig season. (laughs) And so the theological message being that uh, Jerusalem is the one being cursed, is the one being withered because it has no fruit in it. It's a... It's a wasted garden, and Jerusalem will be wiped out again. And they were in AD 70 by the Romans, just like they were in 586 BC by Babylon. But you know, uh, AD 70 did not happen right away. There was some time there. And so in that time, Jesus was still able to get his first fruits, that is, the church. And that first fruits crop prepares the seed for planting and sowing a spiritual harvest worldwide. And it's that worldwide garden now that God is sowing for himself and reaping a harvest and storing up uh, in his barns those who will inherit salvation and inherit the earth. Any thoughts there, Nick? That's good stuff. Um, And I'll just uh, come alongside and say that there, there appears to be like an ascending order here to the the severity of the imminent disaster that's approaching so it goes from fig trees to grapes to olives to the grain to flocks to herds and so uh, some kind of uh, perhaps ascending order there there's six different products here of the economy that are mentioned if if any one of these were to fail you know they would likely survive maybe two but it'd be rough but for all six of these to just go in the tank, this points to catastrophic economic disaster. They point to a hopeless picture for the future of Judah. Um, it's awful, terrible, very bad, no good. And yet, despite this coming economic disaster, even though this will all happen, verse 18, we see Habakkuk's response. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in God. What do we do when things are at their worst? You know, many people, even not a few Christians, they will blame God. And God gets 100% of the blame. But for Habakkuk, and he's not alone in this, by the way, in Scripture, Habakkuk shows us it is in our most distressing times that we must rely upon God. It is in our most distressing times that we have to find our joy in the God of my salvation, because he does save his people, if not in this life, then in the next. And so 
powerful uh, teaching here from Habakkuk hmm. that when you don't doubt in the dark what you knew in the light, right? God was faithful. He has been faithful, and he will continue to be faithful. And that's why, you know, that reading of, of Habakkuk 3 is Habakkuk praying for history to repeat itself. God, show yourself faithful again, even though we have been faithless. Hmm. Yep. And so I will rejoice in Yahweh. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. Just a powerful, potent message, I think. That's right. Yeah, I'll say amen to that. Verse 19 uh, Habakkuk says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Alex, talk for us, uh, talk to us for a minute about these high places. What are the high places that Habakkuk is going to walk? Yeah, you mentioned um, him describing his feet being like hind's feet, deer's feet. In mm-hmm. other words, he'll be scaling uh, the mountain. Hey, which mountain? Which one? Well, the Holy One, the one that belongs to Yahweh. I believe Habakkuk's expressing a, a heavenly reality that will hold true in the heavenly realms even during earthly judgment. Hey, wait a second. I've heard that before. We have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Who is that for again? Oh, yeah, the Christian, <laughs> Hebrews twelve twenty two. We, too, as sojourners on this earth, live in in mind of that heavenly reality that wherever we are, whatever befalls us as the Christian, you've come to Mount Zion. You're in that holy place. You're in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that heavenly truth will one day be earthly manifested. And that is our, that's our, there's eschatology for you. That's our eschatological Mm -hmm. hope. Mm -hmm. This statement that uh, Habakkuk makes, it's um, definitely a statement of fidelity. I like the way you worded it. Uh, you know, you don't forget in the dark what you knew in the light. He says, I will rejoice and exult in Yahweh, my salvation. Yahweh is my strength. This is uh, the the counter to Babylon coming in, whose uh, God is their strength. And so they have their gods, a nation's God was their strength. And Habakkuk maintains that Yahweh, his God, is still his strength. That Yahweh's still in charge. He's not defeated. Marduk has not won. Yahweh is still reigning on in his heavenly mountain, in his heavenly abode, in his heavenly Jerusalem. And it's in that place, at least in spirit, that Habakkuk will make his home until that day when one day the kingdom of God will be manifested earthly. That's why we pray, right? Jesus said, pray to your Father in heaven. Make holy your name, your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think, Nick? Here's another linguistic connection, right? Another allusion to Deuteronomy 32, this time uh, 32 verse 13. In, in that uh, verse, uh, there the image is of an eagle, God's people, like an eagle, on the high places, soaring, here, Habakkuk is a doe, a deer, a female deer, right? Um, he is sure-footed on the high places. I think that's the picture. And in a world of uncertainty, in a world, right? In a world of uncertainty where every footfall is dangerous, when all other ground is sinking sand, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay, as we sing, right? Um, that's the idea, is he will be sure-footed on the mountain. Um, and that's, that's uh, again, a, a picture of um, confidence, confidence in God. He's my strength. Um, I'm not going to find strength in myself. I'm going to find my strength in the Lord, and that's why I'll be sure-footed, even through these uncertain times, and they will be very dark and very uncertain, unsure time. Uh, time. So. That's right. Well, Nick, we have a little um, side question here. Yeah, the money question. <laughs> yeah. So the, the whole chapter, the whole book ends with For the Choir Director on My Stringed Instruments. And so this is definitely a, um, 
you know, Church of Christ specific debate that we have here. And that's that's our background from the Churches of Christ. And so if uh, anybody out there is listening and they're not familiar with that, this is sort of a in-house debate that we've been having for some time. And so uh, the question is, Nick, can we worship God with musical instruments, as it says here, on my stringed instruments? Um, I suppose the easy answer is, well, this is the Old Testament. They did things different back then. Um, and so that's kind of just a, a very short, simple answer. And to, to be fair, this answer is actually quite deliberate, and I think it parses the covenants of God, both old and new covenants. And there's a difference between worship under the old covenant and worship under the new covenant. And, you know, you emphasize how oh, this is kind of a, an in-house uh, Church of Christ kind of debate. What's fascinating is I got a book on my shelf here by a guy named John Price, who's a Baptist. And he's written this book called Old Light on New Worship, and he demonstrates how every introduction of musical instruments to worship under the old covenant was at the direction of a prophet. That is, God spoke through the prophet to his people to dictate what he wanted for worship. He gives example after example of this. Uh, This is kind of typical in the Old Testament. Um, What do we find in regard to worship of the church in the New Testament? Well, every text which deals with worship for the church not only is silent about musical instruments, but it positively identifies, typically, the instrument to be used for worship. And so, for instance, Ephesians 5, verse 19, the heart is pictured there as the instrument. Hebrews 13, verse 15, the lips, the fruit of the lips, that's our, our sacrifice and all that. Uh, we could approach this from shadow substance argument, the shadow of musical instruments under the law has given way to the substance of unaccompanied a cappella singing. Uh, that's another price, uh, uh, argument, by the way, that Price makes as well. Uh, now, having said all that, and there's, there's, there's a lot more that could be brought forward in making the case for a cappella worship in the church. But having said all this, and I think it's, that's sufficient for now, and for me the case is compelling, by the way, from a kingdom perspective, now get your gasp ready. Everybody in the audience ready for this? Get ready. Here it comes. I can't pass judgment so as to consign people to hell, to a devil's hell. I cannot pass judgment on my siblings who worship with musical instruments. Ah, heretic. <laughs> yeah, this right. is cappella. <laughs> I think this falls under uh, Romans 14. Paul says the kingdom is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we should not, and perhaps even we must not, destroy God's work for the sake of musical instruments. Drop the mic. All right. (laughs) I, I, I think that's where we have to go with this is, um, and I think this is, you know, there are there are discussions, and I get to be a part of them every now and again. There are these discussions that are being had with leaders in the Church of Christ that we have spent so long deconstructing who we are that we haven't really worked toward a positive identity of who we are supposed to be as the church. That is to say, we've worked to deconstruct, for example, in, with this question, musical instrument, the musical instruments question. Okay, we can't just say, you're going to hell if you worship with musical instruments. That's not right. And we've worked to deconstruct some of these arguments, but we haven't built a positive case. And I think the way forward, and again, this is kind of the discussion that leaders are having, at least in the circles that I'm a part of, the way forward is we have to approach things from a kingdom perspective because I think that's what Paul does in Romans 14. It's a kingdom thing, and the kingdom is not about food and days. It's about big things like righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So through a kingdom perspective with a kingdom lens, I think that's how we get there with our siblings who do 
worship with musical instruments is not to write them off to a devil's hell, but to say, you're still my brother. Uh, I disagree. I think for me, this is the case, but we be brethren. All right. Anyway, (laughs) that's the narrative and the meta narrative uh, for me. Alex, what do you think? Can we worship God with musical instruments? Well, if you had asked me even just a few years ago, I would have gladly affirmed the a cappella position. Again, Churches of Christ background for our audience who isn't familiar with this debate, although you, you mentioned that Baptist guy. It's definitely not a, a wide Baptist discussion, I don't think. But um, I have slightly adjusted my position over the last few years. And I'll preface that first with an amen to what you said about passing judgment on others for instrumental worship. Um, yeah, there's there's bigger things at stake than that. In my view, well, and I'll back up. The big thing at stake usually for people with an acapella position is uh, hermeneutics. They, they believe hermeneutics is at stake, the hermeneutic interpretive like laws or whatever. So here's the thing. In my view, everything in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple was the shadow of the reality in heaven. So in other words, what you see in the tabernacle with Moses, what you see in the Solomon's temple, those are like little toy versions of the real thing. Those aren't the real thing. Moses was commanded to make everything according to the copy. Well, the copy of what? The copy of the heavenly reality. That's what. He got to see it. He got to go into the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of his divine counsel. He got to see the cosmic view that God gets to see sitting on his throne. Now, we often talk as if the heavenly description is the symbol and that what we see on earth, oh, that's the tangible reality of it. But that's completely backwards to the worldview of the ancient Israelites. Heaven does not mirror earth. Earth mirrors heaven. There's a priority there. One is higher than the other. The earthly temple is the symbol of the cosmic reality, a microcosm, if you will. That's an interesting study in and of itself. Look up temple as a microcosm of the universe so if we see instruments in the old testament temple then that's a reflection of the reality in heaven not the symbol in heaven the reality in heaven if we see harps which aren't really harps they're more like lyres in revelation then that's the reality and anything on earth is a copy or a shadow now having said that i was listening to a podcast where an evangelical guy with a graduate degree in both music and theology, whose profession is worship ministry for large congregations. Here's what he said. He said that the only instrument seen in heaven was the lyre, referring to Revelation, which was a small seven to eight stringed instrument used historically only as an instrument to serve someone who was singing, similar to like a pitch pipe. He believes that Whatever instruments a congregation uses, it must be subservient and supporting of congregational singing in order to reflect the heavenly reality. And most worship bands, in his opinion, do not serve that purpose. And I could get behind a statement like that. I think that's right. And yes, I've heard, I've read, I've written, and even defended myself, the a cappella position, so I'm not unfamiliar with any of the arguments. But this is where I currently land, and I find it hermeneutically consistent because you have the example of the reality in heaven. So we're not breaking hermeneutical rules of interpretation here, and that's where I currently land. And, uh, you know, you're welcome to have any follow-up thoughts to that, Nick, if you want. Well, the only thing uh, that I would say in response to that is, Die, heretic! (laughs) (laughs) I think you blew out the microphone there. Well, I think that brings us to our one-minute sermons. All right. Uh, Alex and I, were both preachers. We have hearts for preachers. We know Sunday's coming. And so we want to get you a couple of real good starts on sermons for Sunday. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we have each selected a song title. I don't know what Alex has selected. He does not know what I have selected. But we will give each other these in successive order. And we will each have to come up with, in 60 seconds, a uh, the beginnings of a sermon and a text to go along with that uh, song title. So that's the way the game works. All right. Um, 
I'm pretty sure that we just don't even need to play this game anymore. You win. <laughs> you're, you're the winner. <laughs> like, you obviously won last week with Dance Monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well alex it's not a competition we're trying to help people but you're right i did win yeah you're the most helpful though (laughs) all right well i think uh, you go first this time right so i give you the song sounds right sounds right all right well nick your song this week is uh we did a song by toto uh in an earlier episode you know africa i think but Mm. um we're gonna do another song by toto they had some good uh, hits back in the day. So this is called uh, Hold the Line. Hold the Line. Hold the Line. Love isn't always on time. Love isn't always on time. Hold the Line. So Hold the Line by Toto. Uh, Nick, one minute sermon uh, starting right now. So I'm thinking of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians in verse 15 that they are to, so then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Nice. And that's connected to the gospel. Uh, there are things that we are to hold the line on, uh, and... As you go through uh, the New Testament, you find that the stuff that you're supposed to hold the line on as pertains to the gospel are the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Um, You are to hold the line on his death, burial, resurrection. These are the big things that are at the heart of the gospel. And so uh, let us stand firm in those things. Let us hold the line when it comes to these apostolic traditions and that's one minute very nice wow you just keep getting better and better nick i think you should do two one a minute sermons and then i'll just listen <laughs> no here's what's gonna happen though man you threw me for a loop last week with dance monkey and so uh i've had this one in my back pocket for a while i'm like eh, i don't know it's kind of it's a it's a tough one i think <laughs> But here we go. Um, It's been covered a number of times. In fact, Sting has covered this song. But it originally came out for uh, the movie The Thomas Crown Affair in 1968 by a guy named Noel Harrison. And the title of the song is Windmills of Your Mind. It's kind of like a spoken word thing. The guy really doesn't sing it so much as he just recites it windmills of your mind and that's that's the hook he keeps saying that throughout the song at different points but anyway (laughs) windmills of your mind alex one minute on the clock 60 seconds and go you know in the book of ephesians paul warns that we should not be tossed back to and fro uh, by every wind and wave of doctrine and that's important because paul also says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter ten, that we need to uh, take captive every lofty thought that raises itself up against uh, the knowledge of Christ, and that is what happens when these winds of doctrines come through, that blows against that windmill of your mind, and you have to decide: is this from God? Is this the truth, or is it not? And you got to take it captive, and so you don't want the spirit or the wind of the evil one spinning the windmill in your mind you want the wind of the holy spirit spinning the windmill of your mind directing you guiding you into all truth according to the holy spirit inspired word of god bravo hey under time too you had five (laughs) seconds left way to go windmill of your mind so there you go that's two good starts on the all right on uh, some sermons (laughs) for all the preachers in the audience well, that'll be it for today. Nick, why don't you tell our audience uh, where they can find our show? You can go into the Google Play Music Store. You can go into the iTunes Store, search Swordplay, and uh, all our archives, our past episodes are there. You can download them to your particular device, take them with you on the go. Leave a review there. That'll help us get the, the word out about it. Um, 
the podcast. Uh, share it on social media as well. That's a good way to do it as well. And if you have any questions, send that to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to answer and read your question um, on air. And so send that swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, again, yeah, be sure to share this, repost this, uh, write a review, help us get the word out uh, about the podcast so more people can study the Bible with us and ask good questions as we read through God's Word. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Sword Play. Sword Play.